this morning, you would have heard a call to worship where we give a number of different reasons that people do walk through the doors of a church. We talked about three weeks ago, we talked about a spiritual curiosity and that a church is a place where faith is on topic for discussion. We talked two weeks ago about a longing for community, that people are looking for a, a community of people to do life with. Last week, we talked about a restlessness in our soul, many different things that can be going on and weighing down on us, and a church can be a place where we can find rest for that. But regardless of why we walk through the doors, whatever our reasons are, we're invited to stand together and imagine a world infused with the presence of God. But what does that world look like? How can we learn to live so that this world of ours begins to look more like the one we imagine? Now, when I think about imagination, I kind of have to go back to my childhood years. And when I go all the way back, there are two things that, two vivid imaginary things that happened when I was a kid that that seems so real to me. And I wonder if any of you would have had a similar experience. The one thing that I used to imagine was that I could stand at the top of the flight of stairs in our semi and I could jump to the bottom. And I would stand at the top and I would just kind of jump in the air and everything would go like in slow motion and then I would land just so softly on the bottom. And I would have this kind of dream or this imagination like time and time again to the point that like when I was awake, I kind of thought I could do it. I never tested it, but I was so sure that this was not actually just a dream, but this is actually something that I have done in the past. It seemed like a memory more than a dream. The other one was that I would be running down the street of uh, my childhood home on Garden Ave, and I would run as fast as I could, and as soon as I got to, like, the peak of my speed, I would kind of jump in the air, and then I would just start flying. And it was just fantastic. And that's kind of what it felt like. And I would just like fly over a neighborhood and look everything from a bird's eye view and then I would land. And once again, it was the same kind of thing where during the day, the the dream was so real and vivid that I think, I think I actually can fly. That was what was going through my little brain. But it's not just in nighttime dreams that children have a vivid imagination. It's during the day as well. Kids are much more imaginative than adults tend to be. And yet somewhere along the way, Our boundless imagination is replaced with things like knowledge, experience, and logic. All good in their own rights, of course, but they come with a cost that we distance ourselves from our imagination. We're able to return to that world in fits and spurts, of course, in our dreams at night. We're all incredibly creative when we're sleeping, right? And sometimes when we actually will take time to be with children, we can re-enter that imaginary world. We can play in their world for short bursts of time, and and it brings us back to that place where we weren't bounded by all of these other things. But in a sense, beyond dreaming and playing with little kids, what else do we need an imagination for? Well, how about life? How about living life? Erwin McManus writes that all a painter has to work with is blue, yellow, and red. Everything else, all the beauty found and formed is the result of imagination and skill. And so we too all have a very similar raw materials that we use to build a life. But if we, all fall, if we fail to apply ourselves, as one author puts it, we are condemned to live out what we cannot imagine. And so this sleeping, the slumber of our imagination can actually lead us to live a life that is just so less rich than we have the potential to live. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the kind of the last batch of Ontario peaches were in grocery stores and they went on sale and uh, I bought a few things of it, but there's no way we could eat them fast enough. So I 
opened Google and asked how to can peaches. I've never done this before, and I decided we were going to can peaches. And so Sophie and I did this together, and the process involves you boil the peaches, and then you take the peaches out, and you put them in like an ice water bowl, and then once they've cooled a little, you take them out and you peel them. And as we were sitting there, so I was doing the transferring over here, and Sophie was doing the peeling of the peaches, and she said to me, she says, this is the most satisfying thing I've done in my life. And I thought inside of my heart, my child, don't be so easily satisfied. You were made for so much more than this. There's more than peeling peaches. If we cannot imagine a world that is better than the one that we're experiencing today, then we're condemned to live in the world as it is. And so let's dive into this morning's reading. It comes from Acts chapter 1. I'll read the first couple of verses again for us. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. So this is a sequel. He says this in my, in my former book. Now, the author of Acts is Luke. So he's already written the first book, the Gospel of Luke, a bestseller. And he's like, now we're going to go with volume two. And volume two is always a risk, right? Like whenever he, there's this blockbuster movie out there and they decide to do a sequel, it's always like this could either be incredible, like we get to relive the magic of the first version, or it's just going to be terrible. And so I thought I'd pull up a few examples of sequels that are coming in the, to theaters in the next year. Uh, one of them is coming out, Top Gun. They are doing another Top Gun. And it, it, I know it's just like, why? Just let it be. But who knows? Maybe it'll be incredible. Another one coming soon is Avatar. And if you think that's a good idea, you're going to be really encouraged because they're doing like five more. So it's not just number two. So hopefully the next one's good. I also heard that they are doing another Space Jam, right? No Michael Jordan. King James is going to be starring this time around. So anyways, we can look forward to the new version of Space Jam. And then I was actually, so I actually knew all of those sequels were coming. But this next one I didn't know there was going to be a sequel to. Uh, coming soon, a sequel to The Passion of the Christ. Did you know that? Now it makes sense, right? If you saw the first movie at the end, like Jesus kind of stands up and opens his eyes and the movie cuts. So what happens next? So apparently, Mel Gibson is making another one of these. And I was reading the little introduction to it. It says, although it is unclear exactly what the film will be about, Mel Gibson, who will be directing the sequel, has mentioned that it will focus less on Christ and more on the people around him. Which is, of course, exactly what Luke did. So Mel Gibson is really just like, he's copying Luke. He's like, okay, we'll tell this story, and then we'll tell this story. Luke told the story of Jesus' life, all that he did, all of his teachings, his death and resurrection. And then he goes on with his second book that we call the, the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Early Church. And he says, in this book, we're not going to focus so much on Jesus, but we're going to focus on what his followers did after he had ascended to heaven. And so we read very succinctly, after his suffering, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, for some inexplicable reason, what Jesus actually said during this period has largely been lost to history. All we have are a couple of sound bites. For 40 days, he taught his followers about the kingdom of God, and we've got like two lines, like two lines from him over 40 days. And so... There's a little bit of dialogue that we heard in this morning's reading. His disciples gather around him, and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this assumption was always lingering in the background of Jesus' life, right? Everyone seemed to think that this is how things would roll out, that eventually this miracle worker, this great teacher, would somehow 
break the oppression of the Israelites and bring them back to the glory years of their kingdom. His followers thought that. His crowds, the crowds around him thought that. The Jewish leaders thought that. And even the governing authorities like King Herod, Pontius Pilate, there was some kind of concern that Jesus was going to become like an earthly king and, and reestablish some ancient kingdom of Israel here. And with the benefit of hindsight, though, Jesus was so obviously not interested in this idea. And this is where we get to this passage from Mark chapter 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Like, they were like, kids shouldn't be hanging around Jesus. His time is too important for this. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. Now, how on earth could a kingdom of children restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, they couldn't. So when they ask this question, like, now? Are you going to do it now? He brushes their question aside and he refocuses their attention. He goes on uh, back again in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so 40 days of teaching about the kingdom of God are boiled down to two ideas. You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. These are the two things that are going to mark what happens from now on. No, Jesus wasn't interested in restoring the kingdom to Israel because, as he had already tried to explain to his disciples, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Our reading ends, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And the story continues. And in the nearly 2,000 years since this initial gathering, Jesus' followers have been trying to live in response to the news that the kingdom of God had already broken into the world. This wasn't about something that Jesus was going to establish now that he'd been raised from the dead. It was about something that had already broken into the world and that Jesus had been announcing all along. But what does it mean? What was Jesus talking about, for example, when he taught his disciples to pray that we should ask, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to say that God's kingdom is taking root here on earth as it is in heaven? So I use this language uh, in crafting our call to worship that says we want to invite people to, to stand alongside us and imagine a world infused with the presence of God. So infusion is the process of extracting chemical compounds or flavors from a plant material in a solvent such as water. So you can have water infused with fruit juice, or or tea would be a classic example of infusion. By allowing the material to remain suspended in the solvent over time, a process often called steeping. And so when we think about Jesus' view of the kingdom of God, he taught that the whole world was infused with the presence of God. That God's presence was was giving flavor and substance and, and healthy attributes to the entire world. And that far from having a kingdom up there or out there somewhere, God was already suspended in the solvent of the world, if you will. But how and where? 
And this is where the need for our imagination comes in. And when I say imagination, I don't mean like, like a child who's just imagining something that does not exist and is just trying to like have a fantasy world, but I mean like using the creative component of our brain to, to see something that is not obvious for us to see. We need to learn how to see how blue and yellow and red, the things right in front of us, are so much more than blue and yellow and red. Just last Sunday afternoon, I officiated a wedding ceremony for a couple outside of our church community. And they got married at this beautiful, uh, the Hacienda, uh, just in town here. Did you know that this was in our city? Like, this is crazy. It's like the most beautiful place on earth for a wedding. And it's right, uh, right around the, the block here. So when I was talking with the bride and groom about uh, their wedding ceremony, they asked me if I could make an announcement at the beginning uh, that they would, that the guests would not use any cameras and they would put their phones away. And they said, you know, they were trying to explain what that was. So I said, okay. And so at the rehearsal, I got together and I said, oh, I just want to go over that announcement piece and let you know um, what I wrote to describe that little announcement. And I told them, and it was something to the sense of the bride and groom would like you to be kind of free from distractions, so please put your phones and cameras away. And the bride kind of, she was a relatively kind of timid uh, young woman, and she said to me, she said, "Mm, that's not quite right. She said, the reason we want people to put their phones away and the reason we don't want them taking pictures is because this is a sacred ceremony, because something spiritual is happening here, and we want people to be a part of it. And I'm like, dang it, I'm the pastor. Like, why are you? <laughs> like, yes, obviously. But they, they realized that in that space, people were going to be able to maybe, for a, that little half hour, imagine something more than what they're used to seeing in front of them. We need moments like that. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor describes how the marginalization of religious belief in our world has led to disenchantment. And what he means by this is that down through history, the world has been enchanted. Every humans have have almost always thought that that there there is God or there are gods or there are spirits or fairies or ghosts or whatever. Everyone in in this world has always kind of had this sense that that we are not alone, that there there are other beings out there. And that this has been changing over the course of the last couple hundred years to the point that there is this disenchantment where actually people have a hard time now believing in what humans have always believed in. What seemed obvious to prior generations is almost unthinkable in our own. And this reminded me of a movie that our family saw, I don't know, maybe in the spring or summer, uh, the movie Yesterday. You, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but you might remember seeing the, the previews for it. So the idea is that everyone in the world has forgotten the Beatles. There's this really bad storm, and the entire planet gets struck by lightning, and then everyone forgot that the Beatles existed, except this guy, Jack. And uh, he gets out his guitar and he plays, I think he plays the song Yesterday, actually, for his friends. And they're just like, that is the most beautiful song I've ever heard. Wow, when did you write that? And he's like, oh, you're funny. Anyways, and he goes on to discover that the entire population of the earth has forgot that the Beatles ever existed. So they don't recognize, they don't recognize any of their music. And so he kind of has to set out on this journey, like how do I help people rediscover the brilliance of this music? In a world that has been stripped of its enchantment, How can we reintroduce God when God has been all but forgotten? We have to pay attention in new ways. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament Testament teacher, he says to imagine the world, that we need to imagine the world 
as though Yahweh, which is the Old Testament name for God, as though Yahweh were a real character and the defining agent in the life of the world. We need to begin to look as, we need to remind ourselves that God is the defining agent in our world. Dallas Willard, uh, he writes that, to th that we need to think about and imagine who God is, who we are, and how the world is designed to work effectively in harmony with God's good will. This is what it means to use our imagination, to imagine a world infused with the presence of God, that we begin to think, okay, that's right. I, I kind of forgot that God is actually all around us, that God is actively involved in this world, that God has designed this world to go in a certain way. I need to rediscover that. Now, I realize this isn't how some of us are used to thinking about Christianity. Some of us, when we maybe heard about Christianity and what it's about, heard a, a simplified version of it, uh, N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says, there are sadly some people for whom the good news, as they've been taught it, leaves them with a vacuum. Now that I believe this good news, they think, now that I will go to heaven one day, what is there to do in the meantime? Those who find themselves thinking that ought to go back to whoever taught them the good news, and metaphorically speaking, demand their money back. You've only been given one part of the gospel. The good news is bigger, better, fuller than you've ever imagined. And so there is this version of Christianity that is like, if you believe these things, you go to heaven when you die. But what do we do with this life in this world? What do we do with the fact that Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst? It's already here. What do we do with that? Well, a failure to recognize the kingdom of God in our midst is first a failure of imagination, a failure to pay attention. And so my message would be the same as in her voice during the peach canning episode, don't be so easily satisfied. You were made, I was made, for so much more than this. The bigger, better, fuller good news is that the kingdom of God has come near. So open your eyes. Look for signs of the kingdom. Anticipate God's activity in your life. Now Jesus' last instructions were be my witnesses. He goes on to use these Names of these towns, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, these, these ever-expanding circles of influence. You start locally, and you go out beyond that. Be my witnesses. And again, depending on what your church background is, you know, that can mean a lot of things. I know that for me, being a witness was a lot like something I actually saw this week. I was dropped my kids off at school, and I was heading into the church here in the morning, and I, I stopped at the intersection of Hazel and University Ave, right at the entrance to Laurier, and as I was standing there, there's like always hundreds of students crossing around there. But I heard someone yelling. I had the windows in my car up, but I heard, could hear someone yelling. And I was like, what's going on? I was looking around. I couldn't see anyone. So I rolled down my window to listen to what this person was yelling. And I saw this woman with a Bible in her hand yelling, you must be saved. Jesus came. And she was yelling this stuff. And I was like, that to her is what it means to witness to the kingdom to let people around them know this is what you need to do. And there was a time in my life where, honestly, I would have probably agreed and thought that that's what Jesus was talking about. But certainly he meant something much deeper and much richer and much broader than just talking loudly around strangers. That may be one way that you can get someone's attention, but how else do we get atten the attention of the world around us? I want to read two excerpts. The first from Jamie Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom. Uh, where, and I'm going to pull these, these two different pieces together that I, help, I think will help us understand uh, something significant about this morning's theme. He says, Our ultimate love is oriented by and to a picture of what we think it looks like for us to live well. 
And that picture then governs, shapes, and motivates our decisions and actions. Thus we become certain kinds of people. We begin to emulate, mimic, and mirror the particular vision that we desire. Attracted by it and moved toward it, we begin to live into this vision of the good life and start to look like citizens who inhabit the world that we picture as the good life. The second piece I want to write, read is from uh, a pastor from New York City called John Tyson. He says, as people who are called to be a new and different kind of community, a city on a hill, which is language Jesus used, we should offer something toward the common good and the renewal of our world. But because our schedules, practices, values, and networks are often identical to those who are not believers, we lack the ability to offer them anything different than the fragmenting forces they're already encountering in society. We have somehow forgotten that we are called to something bigger than our own fulfillment and dreams. And so I was reading these two passages this week. I thought that they kind of go together to describe something significant for us. We develop a vision for the good life. This is what it means to live life well. And when we have that vision, we chase after it. So that determines how we live, the decisions we make, the priorities we have, how we spend our time, our money, who we hang out with, all the rest of it. And then what comes beyond that is what we invite people into. So we invite people in to the life that we're living, right? So if our vision of the good life is somehow off, if we don't understand what that is, then we're going to be living something different, and we're actually inviting people into something that is not the kingdom of God that Jesus came to announce. And so it's important for us to try to understand this. So Dallas Willard translates Jesus' words in Matthew 4.17 this way, rethink your life in light of the fact that the kingdom of the heavens is now open to all. The fact that the kingdom of heavens is in our midst, is at hand, is now here, is open to all, whatever language, whatever words you want to use, the fact that this is true means that we need to rethink our lives so that we actually think, well, what am I actually chasing after? What does actually matter? What are the things that I should value? And then how do I live accordingly? Now, it would make a lot of practical sense this morning to go into detail about what that looks like. What does the kingdom look like? But the truth is, is that's kind of what we do every Sunday morning. We're kind of like getting little snapshots of it every Sunday morning. And specifically next month, we're going to be talking through the Sermon on the Mount, which is as good as it gets when it comes to trying to capture our imaginations with a vision for living in the kingdom of God. We're doing a series called Things D Jesus Didn't Say, so don't be shocked by the title of the sermons as you see them in the program. But we're going to draw from this famous Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to listen in on Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God. Because, as a contemporary author writes, we, who we are determines how we act. So the people that we become, that determines how we act. And how we act determines who we are as we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly in the world. There's something about the character, the kind of person that we are, that pushes us into action. And I read this amazing story like two days ago in the news. It was from in Ohio. And so basically the story goes, this 16-year-old kid was uh, outside doing some gardening with his mom. First of all, that shows his character right there. If you're a 16-year-old gardening with your mom, you are already an awesome person. So he's out there in this front yard, and they're doing some gardening, and they hear their neighbors beside them. They hear like, the, the wife like screaming for help. And so they just immediately drop what they've got, and they run over. And here her husband had been working underneath his car, and the jack slipped. And so the car actually fell on him, and his head and chest were being crushed by this car, just as his legs were sticking out. And so this 16-year-old kid, without hesitating, goes to the front of the car and lifts up the car so they can pull this man out from underneath. 
Well, they interview the kid after, and they're like, you know, how did you do this? He's just like, I just did it. He did it because that's the kind of person he is. The person who helps their mom gardening is the same person who lifts a car to help someone in need. He said, I just thank God for putting me in the position and giving me the strength to do that. But I think it's just more than that. It's like a lifetime of becoming a person who runs into a dangerous situation and helps. You know, he had, the story goes on and it includes that, the fact that just the previous year his father had passed away. He had gone through incredible loss and he said, the thought that was going through my mind was I wanted to be able to save him for his family. Man, like the experiences of this young kid drove him into this action to actually save someone else's lives. Now, a feat like this will happen to very few of us on very few occasions in our lives. Although we do have to remember that Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So there certainly are going to be times in our lives where we will be empowered to do things that are way outside of our normal, uh, our normal activity. But more likely than not, it's going to be the long, slow shaping of our character that determines the way that we act. And that the actions that we do will continue to shape our character. And those will shape the next actions. And that's when we get into that healthy habit of living a way that actually attracts people into a better way of life, which is the way of life God has designed for us to live. I want to read just a brief passage from this book, Slow Kingdom Coming. This is a book, um, actually we're going to try something as a church community here. Uh, I, I don't know if you've uh, ever seen locally they do this thing, the libraries run this thing called One Book, One Community where they kind of encourage the whole city, like anyone who reads, to read the same book, and then you get together with the author at the end of the year. Well, we're going to do the same kind of thing here uh, around this book called Slow Kingdom Coming. And uh, basically, uh, I, let me read this description of what the book's about first, and then I'll explain what we're going to do. This book is about five faithful practices that can help us be committed to deep instead of shallow change. We can be committed to making a long-term difference instead of settling for quick fixes that don't last. When things around us are moving too fast, we can be committed to the slow work of the kingdom. And so what we're going to do is we're going to encourage over the course of the year, like if you're in a small group or if you have a, a group of friends that you get together to read books, to pick this one up and do it. Uh, we're also going to host a couple of book studies. We're going to do one that starts on October 21st, and it's going to run for five Monday evenings and go through the five practices the author talks about. We'll do the same thing again in the new year, but we encourage you to do that. If you, you can buy the book, pick it up yourself, um, pay full price, or we will subsidize it. If you want to buy it through us, you can just pay 10 bucks for it and you can buy a copy and sign up at the lobby afterwards, or using the Church Center app. Uh, you can go on right now, you can register for the thing, you can even pay right through there for the book. Um, so we want to be able to explore, okay, yeah, there may be times where we have this incredible experience to have a dramatic impact on someone's life, but most likely it's going to be the long, slow obedience and shaping of our character that's going to make a difference in the world. And so this book is just going to be one of the things that's going to help us explore how we can live that out as a community. The idea of being Jesus' witnesses starts with a commitment to authenticity and extends to an invitation for others to join us on this journey of faith and discovery. To join us as a church community, maybe, first step, ultimately to join Jesus, to actually learn what it is to follow after him. One of my favorite authors, Miroslav Volf, he wrote this book, and he talked about how he gave the manuscript to a of his, friend of his who didn't share faith, someone who would identify as atheist, and he said, can you just read this book? I'd just like to hear, what, like, what do you think of it? And so he read this book, and he basically got back to him and said something along the lines of, I really love the life that you're describing here. It's just too bad I don't believe in God. 
And so he gave him that feedback, and then Wolf was just like, okay, but, but that's, that's really unfortunate that someone loves this way of life. They love this, this way of life that is totally shaped and, and formed by this vision for the kingdom that Jesus laid out, but they don't believe in God. And so he, he kind of imagines this conversation at the end of the book where he's like, I just want to tell him, I want you to slip into a way of life that you say you like, as you might slip into a church building, and I want you to sit in it, or rather walk around inside it for a while. And there you might just discover a living God, not at the end of an argument, but in the midst of a life well lived. Just live. Imagine the world is infused with the presence of God. Imagine that the kingdom of God is broken into this world already, and start living like it. And maybe in our living, we discover God himself. And so the same invitation is extended to everyone here and to those who aren't here yet, friends, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, for people would understand that the kingdom of heaven is here and we can live in light of that news. So in closing, like our weekly call to worship, the September series has been about acknowledging that we all show up on Sunday morning for different reasons, but that regardless of why we walk through the doors, we're all invited to stand together and imagine a world infused with the presence of God. So, may we be refused to be satisfied with the world the way it is. And may we use the imaginations we've been given to see the kingdom of God that is already taking root around us. And may each and every one of us find our place in its continual unfolding. I'd invite you to stand. I'll close with a word of prayer. As always, we invite you to linger here in this space for prayer up in the corner here. And we'd also invite you to join us around tables for discussion for the next 20 minutes based on this morning's theme. Lord, we are grateful for this place. We're grateful for a place to gather, for a community to wrestle with the, the difficult seasons of life and to celebrate the joyful seasons of life, a community where we can bring our questions and our searching, a community where we can discover you together, where we can imagine what it means to live in light of the kingdom uh, together. So God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would help these ideas and these images to rattle around in our hearts and our minds throughout the course of the week. Be with us as we gather around these tables and inspire the conversation. In Christ's name, amen.